You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. We want to continue on in our series called Genesis Foundations for an Unsteady World. This is uh, our second or our, our sixth message on this. And today we're looking at the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, but I just want to say one of the, I'm I'm real excited about this message because I'm going to be bringing something to you that most of you are aware of, and uh, you probably have always wondered where it was in the Bible. How many many have ever heard of the Egyptian pyramids? And have you ever just went, like, where are they in the Bible since they're such a big, I mean, they are like really a big deal. Get it? Big? Okay. All right, I'll work on my material here. But you just, you know, like where, if, if they're so significant, where are they? Well, I'm going to bring that into the story today to kind of help you with that today. But come on, let's everybody stand for the reading of the word, if you would. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to begin in verses 1 through 11. Let's read together. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were buying sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The Holy Spirit, I pray that as the word is taught today, I know it can touch our mind. I know it can fill us with facts and insights, but... I also know that while we hear with our ears and our mind processes, the Holy Spirit has a way of speaking to a person's heart. And that's what I ask for. I pray that while the mind processes, that the heart is listening and their heart is receiving what the Spirit of God has to say. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So as we're looking at the story of Joseph 
It is 14 chapters, Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. So this is going to, don't worry, we're not, we're not covering 14 chapters today. We'll talk a little more about it next week, the same story, Joseph, different dimension. But I want to look at what we, talk, what we read today because there's some, uh, some insights, as I say, I like to give about Genesis that sometimes is related to the message and sometimes it's not, but it's just an understanding that can help us the next time you're reading your Bible. And today I just want to give you insights that I think will definitely help you not only in this passage, but some of the things that we've read before. So this is one of those I will just give you a little heads up. You might want to take your Bible out by now, and, may, and what I'm about to share here is maybe make a few notations. Because uh, one of the things that you see in the, in the Bible is the fact that the pyramids are not mentioned at all. And you kind of go, so what was this world that these patriarchs of our faith were walking in? We sometimes think they're so, you know, disconnected, uh, people blessed their heart, they lived in such a backwards world, and actually I want you to see that God had his people on the cutting edge of culture even back then. If We can't change the world unless we're willing to engage culture. You don't change things by going into isolation, you don't change things by going into a bunker mentality. God calls for us to be salt and light and be out there and touching people and touching culture. And that's just not today. That goes all the way back to the forefathers of our faith. So let me just kind of give you this. I shared a little bit of this last week, but I added Joseph. And I, you see some names and you'll see some timelines. Why am I doing that? Because some of you have watched sports yesterday. Some of you will watch sports today. And uh, one of the things that you do on a regular basis when you tune into an, a game is this. You look for two things immediately. Number one, you want to know the score. And the second thing is you want to know the timing in the game. First quarter, second quarter, how much time is left? Did I is, or is it just getting ready to go to halftime? Or is this the last two minutes? If it's baseball, like what inning? You see the score, and the next thing you want to know is what inning are we in? Because that tells you how, the time, how much time tells you everything about where the game is at and what it's happening. So this is basketball, this is hockey, this is football, it's, it's soccer, it's, it's baseball, it's everything. You need to know the score and you need to know the time. And then with those two things, it's amazing how fast you can ramp into a game. That's why the TV always makes sure the time and the score is always at the bottom. Because they know that people don't have 100% attention, uh, an attention span that they need to, so they're always prepared to ramp you in. Everybody got that? So this is the same thing. I want you to have some time frames, but this really sets a great stage so that you can understand the world these, these patriarchs of our faith were living in. So we see Abraham, Genesis 12, that's what I preached on, where it talked about he received the promise that he would be numerous as the stars, and uh, God was going to give him the promised land, Genesis 12. That was 2058 B.C. Then I preached on Genesis 26, where Isaac goes into the land of the Philistines, and it's a famine. But Isaac says he has a hundredfold increase, so God's promises are being played out in his local life. That was a hundred years later. Then Jacob comes along, and we, we preach, I preached on this last week, where uh, he wrestles with a man, and we know that that was an angel, because he's getting ready to establish a relationship back with his brother Esau. And that was in 1896. And so today, we're looking at Joseph. Notice it says Genesis chapter 41. We read today Genesis 37. Why do I have Genesis 41? This is when he was in prison, and he gets audience with Pharaoh, and because he interprets the dream properly, Pharaoh promotes him to second in command in Egypt. 
So what I want you to see is from the timeline that Abraham was told this is what's going to happen to the time that somebody actually was in the ruling party in Egypt, which, by the way, was not the promised land that God had. You're looking at around 200 years. If you would have told Abraham, because, by the way, in Genesis 12 and 13, it says there was a famine in the land and he had to go to Egypt until the famine passed. Well, if you've been, if you, if you've been to Egypt, you know this. Most of the agricultural world happens around the Nile. Okay? And so that would have been obvious, an obvious place for him to go, okay, until the famine passed. So he would have saw Egypt in its most glorious days, and, and it was a world power. He would have saw a lot of the sites that we sometimes go as tourists to go see in Egypt today. He would have saw those things. And so uh, we also now read that Joseph is going to Egypt. So what was this Egypt that they went to? Well, this is where I want to talk a little bit about the pyramids real quick because I want you to see that God put his people in a very powerful arena. And you can understand why sometimes people might go, man, I don't see how this is going to work. So Egypt has more than 100 pyramids. So i got to give you a little background on the pyramid. Don't worry, this is not going to be a pyramid message. And we're not going to be having a pyramid scheme at the end of service. This is just... just Take a chill. This is stuff you should have listened to in school, but because you didn't, pastor has to bring it up again. There will be a test after service. All right, so real quickly, about five minutes of this, okay? The first uh, pyramid was actually called the Step Pyramid. It was built around 2630 B.C. How many have ever seen a picture of the Step Pyramid? It doesn't go straight up. It goes like this. It's like a shelf. And you can tell it was their first attempt. Okay? That was built around 26, or 26, uh, 30 B's. That was 600 years before Abraham. So I just want you to process. Very good likelihood Abraham stood in front of that pyramid. So I've, I've had the privilege of going to Egypt. And I've, I've been there. I've seen these pyramids and done some other things. And I know some of the people in this, uh, in this uh, room, you've been overseas and saw these things. And th what I want you to do is, if, if you ever go back to those venues or you've been there, I want you to get, as you stood in front of there, goes, wow, I had no idea the forefathers of my faith stood in front of these things. And by the way, they were probably in way better condition than what we see today. <laughs> but still, just to go, wow, my, I'm standing in front of a structure that Abraham stood in front of. Wow. I mean, it's one thing to say I'm walking where he walked, but to actually see an object that he stared at and looked at and probably said, God, I live in a tent, and it's mobile. Look at this monstrosity. How are you going to do this? A couple other things that I want you to recognize. The Sphinx was built around 2500 B.C. So by the time Abraham gets into Egypt, the Sphinx has been around for 450 years. Think of that. Abraham probably stood there thinking, God, how are you going to do this? Egypt's been a world power for centuries. And you're, you're telling me that I'm going to have these descendants in this land. Man, I'm not seeing it. If you would have told him that his great-grandson in 200 years would be the second in command of Egypt. See, I want you to recognize this. You realize that Joseph was second in command. He would have been, he was in a management position, 
Part of his management would have been some of these structures. Joseph oversaw the Sphinx. See, most of us, we never connect what we read in the Bible to how it actually played out in the world that they were governing in and living in. So let's move on. There's a little more. So Pharaohs, they, they gradually stopped building their pyramids around 1550 to 1070 B.C. So we know that the children of Israel, while they were in bondage, in Egypt would have participated in some of these structural buildings because by that time they had moved from paid labor to slave labor. So there's no doubt that the children of Israel would have had some form of participation because it says that they were in bondage 400 years. So again, to stand and go, I wonder which one of these structures these Israelites laid these blocks. See, it's not just a history that is unrelated. It has a lot to say to us. And so how many have ever seen the Great Pyramid at Giza? I mean, I'm talking photo because it's the biggest pyramid of them all. It's usually the one that grabs the headlines, right? It's the one because it's towering. It's massive. Okay? The Great Pyramid at Giza was constructed around 2560 B.C. during the reign of Pharaoh Khufu. Now, again, this is 500 years before Abraham. This massive, the largest pyramid that is known today was built 500 years before Abraham showed up. It was ancient when, when Abraham got there. And you can imagine him running, to, he's looking at the Sphinx, he's looking at this great pyramid, and by the way, it was way in better shape than it is today. The great pyramid at Giza and the Sphinx were, again, about 500 years before Abraham got his promise in Genesis 12. And it was originally 481 feet tall, but due to erosion over the centuries, it's now only 455 feet. It's been cut down to size a little bit. But listen to this. It was the largest, it was the highest structure in the world until the Lincoln Cathedral was built in 1311 A.D. So for 2,800 years, it was the tallest structure in the world. This, so again, looking at the scripture, you can somewhat go, oh, these poor souls, they had to ride camels. You know, they lived in tents, blessed their hearts, just such an awkward, backward world. That was not an awkward, backward world. It was a very powerful world. And we still have those monuments today that tell, and here's the, there's a lot of debate on how these things got built. There's a lot of theories, but there's still a lot of, nobody can say 100% how they all got built. And I might just mention to you, they built these massive structures on sand. Everybody knows you don't do that, right? Well, the Egyptians figured out how to do it. And they haven't sunk. Pretty phenomenal insight, right? So here's another thing. It has that one, that one, that one pyramid, 2.3 million stone blocks. Each block weighs a minimum of 2.5 tons. Some of them weigh 70 million tons. They didn't have trucks, flatbeds. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have all the stuff to move it. Because some of this stuff was from 500 miles away. We know how to get it there. We don't know how they did it. 
And on top of that, the construction involved 100,000 laborers. They believed that they ran them in five shifts so that they would work for a few months and then go home and tend to their crops and their properties. But they were bringing them in in shifts of 20,000, but a total of 100,000 workers. So at that time, they were being paid. But here's the other part. That one pyramid, that large pyramid in Giza was built in 20 years. That means that they would have had to lay a 2.5-ton block every five minutes 24 hours a day, nonstop for 25 years or for 20 years to make that happen. We know how to do that. We just don't know how they did it. And by the way, we know they had to have taken breaks, so that means that they had ways to accelerate the laying of those blocks, including the shipping. I don't think we could ship that much rock in 20 years if we wanted to. Right? I mean, it's just phenomenal. So, it's 500 years, like I said, before Abraham. And here's Abraham. And now we're coming into a story of Joseph. These structures are 700 years old. This is part of Joseph's portfolio. He is over the management of things. And I don't have time to break all this down, but being second in command, it would, it, it's, he would have had supervision of some of these structures and to go, okay, so how does God take a guy who's on the who's in, in another part of the country, he's been betrayed, he's sold as a slave, he makes it to the capital city, and within a few years, God promotes him to second in command. How can God do that? So what I want to talk on this morning is this thing called favor. F-A-V-O-R, favor. How does God bring favor? How does God develop favor? So, so many times we hear the, the element of character, it's important, but if, we're not, if we don't have the character to match the favor, the favor will get us in trouble. And you see early on how God was helping Joseph to refine the favor that he had given to his great-grandfather Abraham. And Joseph is, is taking this favor that God has into a totally new dimension. It's not the promised land. Egypt isn't the promised land. But he is giving him unbelievable resource and unbelievable authority. But guess what? Joseph's not ready for it. So God has to send him to the school of favor. Not a pleasant place to go. So let's watch how God develops this guy. Number one, read it out loud with me. Favor can produce a critical spirit about others. It says in Genesis 37 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his brother's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about him. That's just not a good thing to be doing in the family. Let me tell you how good I am. Let me tell you how bad my siblings are. Any of you that have multiple siblings, you know that you, there's a mentality. You rise together and you fall together, but don't you roll any of us under the bus. That's not how it works around. And see, jo Joseph knows he's favored. And it produces a critical spirit in him. And by the way, it was just as much his job at this point. He's, part of, he's supposed to be a part of that posse of brothers that's taking care of. But somehow he feels this need to distinguish himself, that I'm better than them, I'm not like them. You know all the problems that we're having out there with the herds? Not me, it's them. They don't listen to me, Dad. That's why we have problems out there. 
Well, Joseph, you, Dad, I do tell them that, but they're not listening to me. Dad, I told them that you would get on them. I warned them. They're not listening. And notice it says it's a bad report. Wow. So he's, even though he knows he's favored, he's using it to elevate himself above his brother. Let me just tell you something. God, God gives you favor so that you can serve. Not so that you can be served. I thought that was really profound. So many people think favor is meant for their personal benefit. This is how I get ahead of you. This is how I become better than you. This is how I elevate myself over you. This is how I make you listen to me. This is how I get validated. This is how I make you do things. Favor, listen, God gives you authority so that you can do right. And you can help. Everybody in this room has, has at some point in time wished there was enough. You were in a spot, you were in a jam, you were, it could have been minor, it could have been major, but we've all had this a context where we go, man, I wish somebody with authority and who had character could step in and make this right. Because right now this thing is just spinning left and right, and, we're, and, and a person with authority who has character could step in this and in five minutes it'd be over. Resolved. But many times what happens is this. People use their authority to not to do what's right, not to serve other people. They, do, they use their authority to get their way. And that's what Joseph was doing. So one of, the ways, one of the ways that you make yourself look good is make sure the other guy looks bad. It's one of the best ways to put distance between you and them is, I am so good, but just to make sure that you know how good I am, let me tell you how bad they are. Number two, read it out loud. Favor can make you a target of people's hurts and frustrations. It says in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. And we're going to talk about that ornate robe here in a little bit. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They are so angry and bitter at Joseph, it says they couldn't even say anything nice. Like, hey, can you pass me the salt? Get up and get it yourself. Two legs, two arms, use them. Hey, does anybody know we're missing a part of the herd? Does anybody know where it went? I don't know. You're the know-it-all. Go find them. Hey, has anybody seen where some, I have no idea, go look for yourself. It just, they had nothing good, nothing kind. But here's the thing, why were they, why were they so angry and bitter? Why couldn't they speak even a kind word to Joseph? Because they're hurt that the fact that their father would favor one son so much over all the others. And what happened is this, the favor that Joseph was receiving actually made him a target of his brother's hurts and frustrations. They were hurt and they were frustrated that their father would even do such a thing. Why would our dad select one of the children to be his favorite and actually have the audacity to parade it in front of us and make us all feel like second-class citizens? Why would he do that? And here's a premise, I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Hurt people will hurt people. And they'll hurt people who have nothing to do with their hurt. 
They're just a convenient vehicle to dump the garbage on. Come on, don't act like you've never done it. Some of you have had a bad day at work, and you walk in the door. Let's just, okay, you all know the story, right? Because some of you lived it. Right. You walk in the door, and just a minor little, hey, babe, since you walked in, could you, can you at least let me set my car keys down? We've got a problem with one of the kids. Now what has he done? I mean, you're, just, you're, you're already off the charts just walking in the door. Why? Because you got hurt, you got stung, you got frustrated. And since you couldn't take it out on the person who produced it and caused it maybe at school or your job or in the community, you walk in the door and you're just looking for somebody who's convenient and can't push back. And we end up hurting people who had absolutely nothing to do with the issue. And even if you successfully vent all that on them, guess what changes? Nothing, because they didn't cause the problem. But here's what you might end up doing. If you're not careful, you'll actually create a second problem. You now have the problem that you walked in the door with. Now you got the problem that you created because you walked in the door. Yeah. Favor can make you a target of people's hatred, hurt, frustrations. They just vent. Why? Because you're convenient. Because of favor, you might, have a, you might be standing out just a little bit more from the crowd. And so it's just easy to blame you. Number three, read it out loud. Favor doesn't mean you tell everyone your business. <laughs> have you ever just wanted to tell somebody... Just because you think it didn't mean you need to say it. You ever notice some people think, well, because I thought it, I was just, I was being authentic and organic. I want to go, no, you're just being unfiltered. (laughs) Filter your thoughts, filter what you say. I mean, come on, just because it flew through your brain doesn't make it a good idea that it came out of your mouth. Filter, filter, filter. I've, I've thought that so many times I'm standing to somebody. Filter, please, filter, 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 filter. <laughs> Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Verse 9, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Pause. Would you just look at that? Where does it say that God told him to tell them? You notice that? It was never stated And now thou shalt go tell thy brothers. Sometimes, listen, sometimes you just don't tell everybody your business. There are some things that God just wants to keep between you and him. You don't don't tell everybody. But in in Joseph, he's like, oh man, I had some great dreams. And, 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 well, I saw my brothers bowing down in front of me. They need to know that. Joseph, just where does this turn out to be good? How does that scenario ever... He felt compelled that he needed to tell them all his business. And it never says that God said, please relay this. Sometimes God just talks to you because he's talking to you. If he wanted anybody else in the room, he would have invited him. 
Yeah, there's things that we can learn on a personal level that become good for us to share with others because other people can learn from those experiences. But this is where you have to begin. Listen, to have what I call, not I call it emotional intelligence. Here, Joseph had bad emotional intelligence. He's sharing things with his brothers he should have never shared. It should have just stayed put. But that doesn't mean we never share. It's the ability to go, this should be, and it's also the ability to go, no, I don't need to do that. This is not the time. This is not the place. That's not me holding back. That's called me being appropriate. Everybody said amen. Number four. By the way, aren't you glad that God doesn't tell you everything? I know what he tells me. That's all I want to know. I would never want to know what God wants. I would never want to know everything that God knows. Please, God, don't ever do that. Just tell me enough for what I need to get through the day. And everybody good? And I, I would appreciate it if he would tell me tomorrow's business tomorrow. Number four, read it out loud. Favor, favor makes you vulnerable. Notice in Genesis 37, verses 17 and 18. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill them, kill him. I just got to pause there. Wow, what a great family dynamic do we have unfolding here. Hey, there's Joseph. I got a great idea. Let's kill him. You kind of like, what? I wonder who brought that on the table and who was the second one to chime in and how quickly that thing spun into, this is a really good idea. And we know that one brother really changed the course by intervening and got him to change course. But it's just interesting. Hey, here he comes. I know. He'll probably be here in a couple hours. Well, what's the plan to kill him? See, by being by, listen, by being by himself, that favor made him a target. What God wanted to use to bless him now made him a target. In verses 19 and 20, here comes that dreamer. They, eat, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Folks, this is now moving into the realm of first degree murder because it's plotted. Okay? This is not something that was done in the heat of the moment. This is now becoming a capital offense. They are planning and strategizing and also how they're going to cover it up. They are about to commit the most horrific sin known to man, premeditated murder. Now we know a brother intervened and he got him to change course, but it's just interesting how fast that hatred was taking them down a path that you went, wow, you guys went there really quick. It's that bad. You're that hateful. You're that spiteful. And favor made Joseph vulnerable. It didn't protect him. It exposed him. And that goes into the next point. Why is that? Number five, read it out loud. Favor has to be tested. God has to, when, we, when he gives us favor, it has to be tested to see if we have the character to match what he wants to do in our life. Because the favor is, is only as good as the character is strong. Come on, that's where you say amen. The character, strength has to match the level of favor, or the favor will not accomplish what God intended. 
First of all, in Genesis 37, how's this for a plan? You're favored. Okay, well, let's start off in slavery, and we're going to let your brother send you there. We're going to have a family. We're going to have a family falling out, and they're going to cover it up that you're being sold into slavery by making it look like you were killed. And so your father's going to grieve you, but he really, you're really not dead. He's just going to believe that you are dead. And then he works his way up and into a guy's house named Potiphar, and then his wife falsely accuses him of sexual assault. By, and so by just being charged, he is, in, he is guilty, and he can't prove he's innocent. So into prison he goes back. And then while he's in prison, there's two guys who are on death row, and one of them's innocent, one of them's guilty. Nobody knows, and so Pharaoh's just put them both there. They're both on death row until he can figure it out. And, and he helps the guy who's innocent, and, he, and, the, and he, he tells the guy, please don't forget me. So he literally saves the chief cupbearer's life. He spared, and the guy forgets him. Does that sound like favor? That just sounds like, Joseph, do you have unconfessed sin that God is not able to work in your life? Do you, I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm not saying that God doesn't want to bless you, but it just doesn't look like it's really going that way. And, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, you want to have an intercessory time where we can ask God to reveal strongholds in your life. But it just looks like to me, you have some underlying things that are just holding you back here, brother, and that you're not confessing them. Why? God was testing his favor. He was making sure that Joseph had the character to handle, listen, what was about to come. He thought favor was being promoted into Potiphar's house and having a good job and things going well and being out of slavery. And God says, you ain't seen nothing yet. But here's the thing. Joseph didn't know that. He really thought being promoted at Potiphar's house was the end game here. Got out of that one. And we lived happily ever after in Potiphar's house. God's like, no, 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 no. You're on a trial run, brother. And here's the thing. I'm going to show you how Egyptian law has injustices in it so that when you become a man of authority, you know how to look for injustice because you suffered it. Hey, when you're second in command in Egypt, how many know you can step into a lot of law cases? Yeah, you can do that. Number six, read it out loud. Favor will take you... It'll take you places that you never dreamed of. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. And then it says, who took him to Egypt. Joseph didn't realize favor was not where he was. Favor was where he was going. And it goes on in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And I think that's critical to recognize the captain of the guard. So he was already getting exposure as to how things worked in the upper echelons of Egypt just by being in Potiphar's house. He, God sent him to school so he could learn. Because one day he was going to stand in front of Pharaoh and he was going to have a make or break moment. And God says, I need Potiphar to train you. 
But your end game is not Potiphar. Joseph never thought the favor that God had for his life was in Egypt. But it's amazing. When he got to Egypt and things began to play out, toward the end he began to see that this was God's master plan. But it's the same way today. Some people don't understand that God's favor can take you places you never dreamed of. What do you think takes missionaries halfway around the world? Why would they give up what they have here to to sacrifice their life and go into some countries where they're wanted? They can't even tell people uh, who are supporting them exactly what they're doing. They just say, I'm going to a closed country. Well, what will you do? I'm going to a closed country. Well, like, where will you be living? I'm going to a closed country. Why would anybody take themselves, their family, and go live under those contexts and those pretexts? This past week, I had to, I mean, I'm constantly meeting with folks, but this past week, I met with a, a young man who's a missionary, and they're getting ready to head out. And he was a student at UVA a couple years ago, and at UVA, he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was on his way to becoming a doctor. That's what the family plan was, okay? That's what the family did. You know, the kids do X, Y, Z, and they go to school, and then after that, they go to medical school, and they find some expression in the medical world. That's just, that's what the family dynamic was. And then he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And then he made the mistake of going and hearing a missionary preach. And he heard all these closed places that had nobody to give witness to Jesus. Places that didn't even have 1% Christian. And he didn't have a church background. All he knew was is what he learned as a student at his Chi Alpha group there at the UVA where he accepted Christ. And he went, I think God wants me to become a missionary. That was a difficult conversation when he went home. Because mom and dad aren't of that orientation. I mean, they... They acknowledge there's a God, but they're not ready for their kids to give it up for Jesus. And after all, there's a plan here. And by the way, you're at UVA. Why why are you throwing this away? And then he said, I met a young lady at UVA who was a Christian, and lo and behold, she told me she was called to missions. And I went, well, I guess that means we need to get married. Crazy thing, I've accepted Jesus and I'm called to missions. What are the chances of two people called to missions meeting at UVA? That must be God's will. (laughs) And so they did, they got married. And they just finished their first term and they're getting ready to go back for their second. He said, we're having the time of our life. He said, I love what, I can't believe I get to do what I do. To watch somebody go from not even believing there's a God to believing there's a God. And then the day we baptize them in water because they've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we baptize them in the water, and he's, he's, man, I love what I, let me tell you, the favor of God will take you places you never dreamed of. And by the way, he said, well, I'm not called to mission. Listen, God will call you to reach people in this community. You'll see injustices. You'll see things. You'll see a group of people that aren't being touched or are not receiving justice or they're not being ministered to. God, listen, he calls people in this community to go to another part of this community and say, last year I would never be in front of you doing what I'm doing, but today I'm here because you matter to me. And then when God does something, you go, I can't wait to come back next week.
I love these people. It matters to me what happens to them. I care about it. The fa- Listen, the favor of God will take you places you never thought. Number seven. By the way, I had 14 of these. So I cut it down to eight. I heard the people who said amen. And I will be doing a voice analysis after church on the recording to see who that was. I heard you. Anyway, number seven, read it out loud. Just because you lost your coat doesn't mean you lost your favor. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. Down in verse 31, 32, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. By the way, do you notice they never said our brothers? Boy, just, just that wall. He's not one of us. We will never accept him. And by the way, J- um, Jacob believes it to be a son and mourns his death. So why, here's, here's a background on that coat so that you can be appreciative of what God did. First of all, it says it's a coat of many colors. So obviously they didn't have Walmart back then. So the ability to put something together that was multicolored, even two color took some effort, three color. So when it had multiple colors, that says two things. A lot of effort, a lot of money. That's the only way you could make something like that happen because you had to go to various sources to get particular colors, okay? It wasn't a one-stop shop kind of a deal. You had to go find a dye maker who specialized in that color. So this would have been a coat that took a lot of effort, okay? So that tells you, number one, his father put a lot of thought and effort into creating this thing. This wasn't, hey, you'll you'll never believe what I found on the clearance sale rack. No, this, this guy put in some effort to make this coat, to acquire all these various colors. The second question is this, why was he given a coat? So, I don't have time to unpack it, but uh, just very briefly, a coat of the type that Joseph had was a sign of authority. In his case, a sign of management. It was a family business. So, Because he was the youngest son, one of the things that Jacob would have had a challenge is, how do I make sure that people outside of the family know that Joseph has authority to do business? Well, the coat would have said, oh, he's management, so he can speak for the business. He can. So so Jacob is the owner, Joseph is management, and his brothers are the laborers. Well, everybody knows the oldest son is supposed to be the manager. And he's been skipped over, and it's been given to Joseph. So when they took his coat, they were saying, we have never accepted your authority in this family. We don't care what daddy gave you. We don't accept it. And when they took his coat and they wrecked it and they destroyed it, they were saying, you have never had authority in this family, and you never will. You will never Tell us what to do. Not even dad can override that one. That's the big deal about the coat. By the way, how many know later on in the story, he still had his management position? 
And it's a wonderful story because it says his brothers didn't recognize him. And I'll, I'll unpack that next week because there's some, some things inside the Egyptian culture that uh, Joseph would have had to have do to become a ruler of his magnitude. And so it literally would have made him unrecognizable to his brothers. You say, oh, that's pretty cool. Okay, then come back next week and I'll tell you the rest of it. How's that for some bait? Yeah. But anyway, so... He lost the coat, which would have been easy to go, I've lost it all. And God says, no, you lost the coat, but you haven't lost my favor. Because the favor was never tied to the coat. I've called you. And, th- and this was just a trial run to see how you handle conflict. Because, buddy, one day you're going to handle world conf- conflict called world hunger. You're going to have to be a master at settling disputes. All right, here's the last one. Last one. Read it out loud. Divine providence, divine providence is always on the scene. Hmm. With everything going on, God was there. But I got to point out something interesting about the story. You'll never read in Genesis 37 when he's in the cistern and his brothers are trying to kill him. They're trying to make a decision. He actually is hearing the conversation. Up above while he's in the cistern, we're going to kill him or we're going to sell him? We're going to kill him or we're going to sell him? And, of course, he would know their voices, and he knows which brother intervened that got him, got him to agree. Let's sell the guy. Let's not kill him. So he knows who to credit for saving his life. Did you notice you never read? He prayed. Never. We don't have a prayer while he's in the cistern and his life is in the balance. We never have a prayer while he's in this caravan headed to Egypt. We never have a prayer when he's on the slave block. There's this spiritual transformation that seems to happen in Potiphar's house. We don't know what it was, but from Potiphar's house, we begin to read in the scripture where he starts to give God credit for the favor that's coming back to his life. Over and over. Even so, I'm jumping ahead, when his brother showed up, and they were, and then they, and he revealed himself. You know, I'm translating here a little bit, but his brother's like, I think we're dead. And Joseph went, no, 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 no. What you meant for bad, God meant for good. It's interesting. All of a sudden, he's talking God all the time. Whereas he's never mentioned God until Potiphar's house. And then after Potiphar's house, He's always talking about God. He's giving credit to God. He's explaining God to people. And here's what happened in Potiphar's house. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So there's the Lord. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Verse 4, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Verse 5, from that time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. All of a sudden, boom, five times God gets mentioned. Crickets, 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 crickets. Boom! It's the Lord! 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 Sounds like a conversion to me. 
That's just not a vernacular that has come out of Joseph's mouth. I think he believed there was a God, but you don't read that he was actively engaging in in that relationship, and now all of a sudden he is. Divine providence is always on the scene. Let me tell you something. God is always available to where you are. It's just that sometimes we're not looking for him or we're not talking to him. And sometimes it takes being put into a Potiphar's house and you start to go, hmm, I should have been crying out to God a long time ago. What has taken me so long? The only reason I'm even starting to get some traction here is because God is with me because this place has hundreds of thousands of slaves and all of a sudden I'm the guy getting traction. And from then on you find, I call it, Joseph had a God language. Sometimes we have to go to Egypt to find God. But none of us want to sign up to go there. People who have addictions, drugs, alcohol, could be a variety of other abuses in life, but for whatever reason, God is in your Egypt. He's in the, he's in the treatment center. He's waiting on you. You go, I don't want to go there. <laughs> well, Joseph didn't want to go to Egypt, but that's where he found God. And sometimes people have to go to a rehab center because it's the only place that they can listen to God because they use their freedom to drown his voice out. And so God says, let me draw you to your Egypt. You're not going to be in here forever. You're not going to die in this place. But I am available and I want to convert. Sometimes God lets a person get arrested. Sometimes God lets stuff happen in our life and it literally pushes us into an Egypt and you're going, why? Because God says, because now I have your attention. Because on your own, you haven't been talking to me. But I put you in your Egypt and all of a sudden, it's God this, God that, hallelujah, praise God. The last six months, you've been using my name in vain. And now this is the first time I actually get a conversation out of you where it's out. It's not my name in vain. You're using it in praise and prayer. Talk to me. God's always there. What's missing is you. Are you there? And are you ready? And everybody said amen.